Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Haber, and welcome back. We will be joined shortly by my good friend Matthew Tiermond. Matthew Tiermond is an investigative journalist who has any number of various affiliations in the national and international conservative movement. He has recently been extremely active with all the shenanigans with the Brazilian election. He is always on the ground in Europe. So we're going to have a wide ranging kind of international man of mystery esque conversation with Matthew Tiermann coming up shortly. Before then, I want to talk a little bit about what is happening here domestically and I guess as I probably do perhaps a bit too often, but it seems almost inescapable at this point, we want to talk a little bit about what is happening here in Florida. And by Florida, I, of course, am now talking about Mar-a-Lago. So we are here one week after President Donald Trump dined at Mar-a-Lago with Kanye West, who legally goes by Yay these days. I actually had not realized that. I thought it was just a nickname. Apparently, he has legally changed his name to Yay, so we will honor that. We'll call him Yay from here on out on the Josh Hammer Show. So President Donald Trump dined with Yay at Mar-a-Lago last week, and apparently with him were Yay's 2024 quote-unquote campaign manager, Milo Yiannopoulos. How's that for a name from the past? Alongside one Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes is someone that I have known about for many, many years now. Nick Fuentes probably blocked me on Twitter back when I had just a couple thousand Twitter followers, maybe back in 2015 or 2016. I do not have enough bad things to say about Nick Fuentes. He is scum of the mother effing earth. Reprehensible. I mean, vile beyond any articulable measure. He has infamously, time and time again, mocked the Holocaust. He has time and time again analogized Jews to cookies burning in an oven, questioned the number of Jews killed in the Holocaust. He has openly defended Jim Crow segregation. You heard that right. You heard that right. The the kid, the 24, 25-year-old incel piece of shit, who Ye is currently hanging out with, has openly defended Jim Crow segregation. He has literally said that, what, drinking at separate water fountains for blacks and whites, it was better for both people. He has literally said this. Unbelievable. Ye, as we discussed on this show about a month, month and a half ago, who very clearly, it seems, has been deeply influenced over the past year or so by black nationalist types, by Louis Farrakhan, Nation of Islam, black Hebrew Israelites, various fringe black nationalist groups. He is hanging around now, apparently, with a 24, 25-year-old kid who is as white supremacist to the core as they come. 
I, I, I really don't know how this happened. I mean, honestly, the whole story is just so absurd. Milo Yiannopoulos, I mean, where is that name? Where did that come from? I mean, those of you who were, who were around during the 2016 election, during that very closely contested primary, you will remember that at the time, Milo was an alt-right friendly editor with Breitbart at the time. He, uh, during the 2016 campaign, if I recall correctly, was a fairly pro-Trump figure. He was always a little weird, I think, to put it mildly. He was kind of a dirty, mean, trickster kind of guy. And then a video kind of emerged in 2017 of him coming out at one point openly defending pedophilia. And at that point, he was basically shunned from the movement. You really haven't heard his name in years. He's now running this quote-unquote presidential campaign for Kanye West, a.k.a. Ye. And Ye is tweeting out videos of this quote-unquote presidential campaign. Apparently, he went to Mar-a-Lago to ask Trump to be his vice president. And then Milo Yiannopoulos, for God's sake, this lunatic who belongs in an insane asylum alongside Nick Fuentes, one of the most reprehensible young white nationalists in the country, end up at a dinner with Donald Trump. What the hell? I mean, I am sorry, but what the actual hell? There, there is so much ludicrous and wrong with this picture. And sometimes I feel, I got to be honest with you guys. I got to be honest with the audience here. I mean, sometimes I feel like a crazy person because I care about the issues. America is not in good shape right now. I, I hate to be the one to break it to you if by some chance you have not looked around and noticed that in many respects, the sky seems to be falling down. We're in and out of a recession. The ruling class in this country absolutely hates the subjugated deplorables half of the country. That is not a sustainable recipe for long-term health and sustenance and endurance, to put it mildly. We have a wide-open border, unprecedented numbers of illegal aliens flooding across that border, 2 million-plus, according to CBP data over the past year alone. There is so much wrong happening right now, and I care about the issues. I care about the state of the republic, and... Many of the guests that we bring on to this show, of course, feel the same way. That's why we want to bring them on to talk to you. But what is this petty third world drama happening in various wings of the conservative movement right now? Milo Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes. I mean, I'm having like, I'm having flashbacks here. These are names that have not been relevant on the scene in years and years. And, you know, there are some folks now who are talking about how this is an op and someone is orchestrating it, and someone is, is playing Ye and is funding Milo Yiannopoulos to run this quote-unquote campaign for Ye, and it's all an attempt to tarnish President Trump, that may or may not be true. In fact, it wouldn't shock me in the slightest if it were true, actually, because I simply do not think that Ye or Milo Yiannopoulos or Nick Fuentes are even remotely capable enough actors to pull off something of this magnitude by themselves, so it would not surprise me in the least if someone were actually pulling the strings, paying out the checks, signing them, and so forth there. But, and here's the key point here, but that does not excuse Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, from getting dinner with a lunatic like Milo, a Jim Crow-defending, Holocaust-denying, white nationalist, incel, abhorrent figure like Nick Fuentes, or, and here's the crucial point, or, for that matter, Kanye West himself. With all the crap that Ye has been saying for the past month and a half, almost two months now, 
the guy who was spewing straight Louis Farrakhan bile? Why was Trump meeting with Ye in the first place? Because the defense that I've heard from various Trump 2024 supporters is, oh, President Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was. He didn't know or he didn't remember or whatever who, who Milo was. He was just there because Ye is an old friend and asked for a meeting. Well, you know what? Maybe the president of the United States or the former president of the United States who still has the gravitas of the office of the former presidency and so forth, maybe he should not deign to meet with someone at his private club, this referring to Ye, who has been talking like Louis Farrakhan talking about how the Jews control the media, the Jews are to blame, the Jews are this, the Jews are that. I don't know. Maybe President Trump should not have taken that dinner in the first place. So I, for one, am personally waiting for President Trump to admit that he should not have dined with Ye, Miley Yiannopoulos, Nick Fuentes, and so forth. I am not entirely sure that that apology is happening. At a bare minimum, it would be nice to get a very kind of straightforward condemnation of Nick Fuentes. I think that would be a a bare minimum. It's been interesting to see that various kind of high-profile supporters of, of President Trump, especially kind of Jewish supporters and so forth, have been very quick to condemn President Trump for this dinner it's very interesting this past Sunday, ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America, which is one of my personal favorite pro-Israel organizations. So it probably is my favorite, pro, uh, my single favorite kind of pro-Israel organization in America. They actually recently honored President Trump. It was just two weeks ago that he spoke at their, at, at their big gala in New York City. He was properly, properly honored for his incredible, incredible contributions during his presidency to secure the health, safety, and security of the Jewish state and the Jewish people. I actually personally wrote a column before the 2020 presidential election for the New York Post referring to Donald Trump as the, quote, most pro-Jewish president ever. I stand by every word of that column, by the way. But that does not excuse what he did here. It really does not. This is ugly stuff. It is fatuous. It is silly. And for those of us who care about the damn issues, who care about trying to salvage this republic that is increasingly, day by day, it seems, getting ever closer to the brink in decadent, late-stage Roman Republic fashion, for those of us who care about that, I am so sick of this crap. I am sick of the drama, and I'm ready to start turning the ship around. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So as previously mentioned, we have a long overdue, very long overdue, we might say, guest on the show this week. That, of course, is Matthew Tiermond. He is an investigative journalist. He is on the board of James O'Keefe's Project Veritas, fellow Claremont Institute alum, general kind of international muckraker in global right-of-center movements, which I suspect we will be talking about quite a lot today. So, Mr. Tiermond, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, well, Josh, it's an honor and a distinct pleasure. I'm a longtime uh, listener, first-time caller, and a uh, <laughs> huge fan of your work. 
<laughs> well, the respect, of course, is mutual. So, you know, for, I guess for the folks out there who don't know who you are, why don't we just start off on that note? And I should note, by the way, that those of you who kind of follow our Newsweek activities a little more closely, you, you should recognize Matthew Tierman's byline because the two of us actually were the co-authors for an interview about a year and a half ago with Prime Minister, Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki in Warsaw, Poland. We, we, wrote that art, we wrote that article, that interview together, Matthew. But for those of you who don't follow Newsweek perhaps as closely as I do, because I work here, who are you? Why don't you tell the listeners exactly a little bit about how you got into this movement? Oh, well, who are any of us? Uh, very existential question. But uh, long time, started a, a career on Wall Street and broke off from that in 2011-12 uh, and got fully involved in first domestic public policy. But at the time, I just obtained my dual citizenship with Poland. My father was a well-known writer and anti-communist dissident in Poland and in Central Europe behind the Iron Curtain and then came to the U.S. in the 60s and was an advisor to Nixon and Reagan and close friend of theirs. And in that sort of old guard conservative movement, uh, focusing on on those battles uh, geopolitically as well as culturally, he said it decades before Andrew Breitbart that politics is downstream from culture. And to that effect, he uh, founded the Rockford Institute and was the founding editor of what was then called Chronicles of Culture. Now, uh, some of your listeners might know it as Chronicles, uh, which is being uh, helmed uh, now by Paul Gottfried, who worked under my father in the in the 70s and early 80s before my father passed in 85. Uh, so I sort of have it in the bloodstream to be a uh, sort of political uh, activist, conservative uh, culture warrior, anti-communist uh, uh, deeply. It's, it's very much in the bloodstream. I mean, my father was uh, was one of the staunchest uh, writers in Poland who never bent to the censors. And, you know, it's like uh, Van Gogh and other artists. You're never really appreciated in your life until you die. And now there's streets named after him in Poland, but he was rather uh, 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 blacklisted and siloed and silenced uh, and censored deeply when he was in Poland, both when he was there as well as when he left and he was publishing in the emigre press, uh, writing both uh, fiction and nonfiction about communism. Uh, so I grew up sort of versed in that. And after uh, a decade plus on Wall Street and sort of growing up in that industry, I just couldn't help but come off the sidelines and get very involved in public policy. And starting with uh, Adam Andrzejewski and Open the Books, I was working with uh, Adam as he built out his great organization from a state-based C3, uh, C4 to a national C3. And J James O'Keefe was a friend of mine uh, already from New York. Uh, and when I got into the movement, quote unquote, I joined his board and have worked closely with him and helping uh, really grow that organization. When I uh, started uh, working with him in uh, 2012 or 13, you know, six or seven people, eight people. Now it's, you know, 60 to 80, depending on uh, uh, when we uh, when we test our headcount. Uh, so that's been, you know, super gratifying to be on the front lines of some of these domestic battles, but gotten very involved uh, starting in Poland and Polish politics. Uh, when I started going on the ground there regularly and seeing what was going on with the Eurocentric leftists, uh, as even though it was a really conservative society and was really ripe for a pendulum shift back to the right uh, that reflected its cultural dynamics, uh, which were being uh, sold out from under it uh, by a, a sort of post-communist cabal of Eurocentrists uh, who had sold Polish sovereignty to Brussels and Berlin for literal cash and bags at times, which I started reporting on. I just couldn't help but sort of run 
down to where the fire was and want to run my mouth off about it. Didn't make me many friends, but hey, if you want more friends in this town, get a dog. I already have a dog, so I'm good there. <laughs> uh, and then from Poland, I just kind of started spreading outward. I you know, became uh, quite close with many of the Polish right-wingers and started going to more European, uh, pan-European uh, sovereigntist party conclaves and events and speaking. And I was writing in Poland as well. I I, I started writing for a uh, for a tabloid, I, so editorials for a tabloid, which was pretty funny because the only place you could get the truth written on an editorial page uh, within the Polish media was on these tabloids. You know, think you know a uh, a broadsheet that has uh, a back page of actual interesting editorials versus you know alien impregnates local blah blah blah, which is in the uh, front pages. So it was just kind of, but it was very well read and it was uh, well followed. And I sort of started doing some freelance stuff on economics and public policy. That was a little deeper than just political commentary. Uh, and then at the same time in Europe, I uh, started really watching the sovereigntist movements. I uh, Bannon recruited me. I'd known uh, some of the people in that circle. He recruited me to write for Breitbart about Poland and Central Europe uh, when they created the Breitbart London uh, vertical under Raheem Kassam, who was a, you know, our close mutual friend, who was Nigel Farage's deputy uh, during the Brexit push. And so I was writing about all of these issues in Europe. And as a result of that, got much closer to some of these parties that I've since worked with, covered, become friends with, the Swedish Dems, which we'll probably talk about in Sweden, who I think are a great model for right-wing sovereigntist parties across Europe. Obviously, the Brexit movement with Nigel, uh, AFD in Germany, Vlaams Belang in Belgium, uh, Front National, uh, Rassemblement, Le Pen's party in France, then later on. All right, let me cut you off right there, because because you clearly have done a lot of globetrotting. And, you know, it was funny when I asked you kind of how you joined the movement and you, you use that phrase. So explicitly, you know, I, I like to tease Matthew so the listeners can know about I, 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 I say that Matthew talks about joining the movement as kind of a 16 year old Southern damsel in her debutante ball. But, you know, it, beca it, 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 because of how much you've been able to kind of spread throughout the movement, obviously, you've clearly been successful. And, you know, the movement as a whole is clearly greater for your various contributions in so many different national and, and international respects for it. And I guess if there's one theme, and the listeners, I think, just got a little hint of that, that I can kind of think of to summarize large swaths of your work, it is dedication to transparency. And, you know, I, th I think for you, Matthew, a lot of this obviously has to do with the fact that your father was an, was an anti-communist dissident fighting under authoritarian and tyranny and so forth. And for you, you know, accountability and transparency is, is the name of the game. And, you know, I, I, for, at least for me, kind of viewing you as a friend and an activist, that's kind of how I draw a direct line from OpenTheBooks.com, which is kind of a fiscal accountability, fiscal transparency outfit to Project Veritas, which is kind of the, the sine qua non, the quintessence of transparency, right, and, and kind of journalism and First Amendment and all of that. And that kind of takes us directly to where I want to be, kind of begin our international conversation before we kind of get to a little domestic 2024 at the end. But let's start internationally on the transparency and accountability front. And specifically, what I want to have you talk about is your recent forays in Brazil. Because sure. you were on Tucker Carlson recently to talk about what's been going on down there in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro and his closely contested election against Lula, the left-center candidate. So break it down for us. You've been really kind of the tip of the spear of the American kind of media's attention on Brazil. You've done about as much work on that as anyone in the United States. What is going on there? And I guess more relevant, more to the point, why should our listeners care about it? Absolutely. Uh, 
So by, by way of uh, background context, I, you know, Europe was kind of my beat, you know, with uh, a base in Poland, I lived there part time and I'm traveling all over Europe. And that was kind of what I knew and, and fighting the EU and its abrogation of sovereignty and national constitutions and the electorate's wills. Uh, in Brazil, I wasn't really planning to get so involved in Latin America, uh, but life comes at you fast. On September uh, 2021, so what, like 14, 15 months ago, I went with Jason Miller to speak at CPAC Brazil. And we, I, I have friends from Brazil. I'd been sort of cognizant of the Bolsonaro populist movement and how, you know, this is something that Bannon and I always talk about on his show in War Room is that the, you know, reactionary pendulum shift toward populism is. Uh, even though we are sovereigntists and we really do believe in our own nation state's best interests and uh, and national wills, uh, the globalist movement in harmonizing global policy is the enemy. And so sovereigntists do have to work together. So I came to went to Brazil to give a speech about it. And we were warned quite, uh, quite vociferously by our Brazilian friends on the ground, as well as our friends domestically here who are expatriated and some even in exile, that it's a pretty fraught place uh, that as bad as things were with the deep states, the administrative state, the globalist uh, philosophical uh, cohorts trying to push against the populace like Trump in Brazil, that was on steroids and Bolsonaro was was really the war against him internally, especially out of the judiciary, was very, very aggressive and ugly. A lot of uh, imprisoning and censoring going on of journalists, of his congressmen. And we went and we, we went eyes wide open. Uh, but when we were there, we talked a lot about a free press and some of the things that we were seeing emanate from the Supreme Court. And a news story broke that we were under surveillance from the moment we landed. We got there on a Thursday and on a Sunday, uh, the mainstream press broke, tipped off ostensibly by the Supreme Court and their police force that we were being surveilled the whole time, which I sort of expected. You know, I come from uh, Poland and uh, Central Europe where the post-communist apparatuses are still very strong and they run a sort of closet shadow uh, game behind the curtain and how they try to effectuate their politics. Communist habits die hard. Uh, and when uh, Jason, you know, saw it, he was pretty you know, upset. But I told him, I said, there's a good chance we're going to get detained uh, when we exit the country. They're going to, you know, want to want to talk to us, quote unquote. And that lo and behold, that is exactly what happened. Uh, we were leaving on a Monday, which was uh, the Independence Day marches with millions of people on the street and the police force that uh, is loyal and reports to the Supreme Court, the judiciary there. They have their own police force. It's almost like a Praetorian guard. And and they detained us and said, we're not under arrest, but they wanted to know who we met with. They wanted us to basically write down the names of activists, journalists and politicians we met because they were engaged in a criminal investigation they called a fake news investigation. And how Orwellian is that, uh, where they were investigating and trying to levy criminal charges against uh, the Bolsonaristas, the Bolsonaro tied righties in, in politics and journalism. And it was a very Stasi like tactic trying to put pressure on us. And uh, I was uh, pretty uh entertaining to you know uh, be in the situation simply because of course what do you do you call the state department they send over basically an intern who says yeah y'all are screwed get a lawyer see ya and it was just kind of par for the course they probably whispered to the uh, praetorian guards on their exit yeah keep them forever uh but we did uh we did lawyer up and, and get out and not give and not give up any names and that just got me much more deeply interested in what was going on so for the following months i spoke to a lot of people on the ground some of the censored and imprisoned journalists and politicians and wrote a big piece ahead of this uh, 
the beginning, the first round of this election, so I, which was October 2nd. And so I printed the published the piece a couple of days ahead, uh, about 5,000 words on how out of control this judiciary is. And, you know, I pointed out that this is a judiciary with powers that would make Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe blush. <laughs> the ability of a court, which is, you know, separation of powers, supposed to adjudicate uh, the Constitution on a higher level and at a lower level uh, adjudicate uh, violation of law. But here is a court that is investigating, is prosecuting, has subpoena power, obviously, uh, and has all these powers rolled up where they can really make hell for political <laughs> enemies. And so that's what they were doing. And so I did a deep dive on this and even predicted that there was going to be chicanery in the election. Uh, there's, you know, I saw it on the ground myself in some of the protests going on when we were there. People chanting, give us paper ballots, give us auditable ballots. And by way of background, when Bolsonaro, Jair, the current president, uh, was a congressman uh, about 10 years ago. He actually spearheaded legislation that was passed in the uh, Chamber of Deputies, which is like the lower house, our House of Representatives. They have upper house Senate is bicameral and a lower house. And this Chamber of Deputies, like our house, is where legislation starts. It's very powerful. And they passed legislation saying that uh, every election uh, polling site, uh, in addition to the digital uh, election uh, mechanism, you know, push a button on an electronic screen, there has to be a matching paper ballot. And this was passed in the in the lower house. And Dilma Rousseff, who was then president, she took over after Lula was convicted, uh, criminally convicted multiple times. Uh, she was later uh, impeached and convicted herself, kicked out of office uh, for the same uh, corruption uh, snare, uh, which was called Operation Car Wash. That's how it was sort of colloquially known, where Lula and Dilma were taking state assets, especially natural resource assets, and selling them for cash in bags to mostly the Chinese, but elsewhere as well, as well as giving you know, Petrobras oil to Cuba gratis uh, because we're Workers of the World Unite as a global movement. And the uh, the Operation Car Wash got its moniker because they were literally laundering the money through a chain of car washes. So sometimes, uh, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, but Dilma had vetoed this uh, bill that Bolsonaro spearheaded and was passed in Congress. And then the Congress overrode the veto, which was something that never happens in Brazil, that they have the power to do it with a supermajority, overrode it. And then it went to the Supreme Court, the same Supreme Court we, we've been discussing, who then struck down the law under privacy concerns, uh, which is such a fig leaf. I mean, if anything, it's, you know, protecting the integrity of the election uh, is, you know, the, the that and privacy are canards or it's a fig leaf. It's uh, never the twain shall meet on those issues. Election integrity is, is integral uh, to create to, you know, save the sanctity of a society and to prevent what's happening, whether in the U.S. or here or elsewhere. Uh, so I had done a lot of work on putting these storylines together so that people in the West could understand them. In Brazil, it's very well understood. I mean, I wrote about how Lula can't really campaign. Everybody yells criminal. Uh, and even in between the first and the second round, when Lula eked out, uh, supposedly, or at least, you know, this is what had been reported and presented, eked out a a uh, slight victory on Bolsonaro, but not the 50% plus a vote that would uh, not send the election to a runoff, kind of like Georgia. You need a, a simple majority for the the, the vote to be uh, uh, verified or validated. And uh, the uh, the during the second round, between the first and the second round, even calling Lula a corrupt convict felon criminal was uh, made into a statutory diktat by the Supreme Court. You can't do it. So they started censoring journalists who would refer to, you know, the convicted Lula da Silva, the ex-con, the felon. And there's so much sort of minutia here. I mean, the people who let him out of prison, he was sentenced to 12 years on, in three different courts under uh, uh, something like 19 different charges. And the Supreme 
court of his appointees, his Dilma, and when Dilma was uh, pushed out of office, Temer, uh, who was only in office for a year and a half or two years, uh, their appointees overturned and annulled his convictions so that he can get on the ballot. And there's another law in Brazil that's longstanding that if you're a convicted felon, you cannot run for public office. Well, they annulled all of it. They didn't just overturn it on a uh, appeal, sort of a, a, a pending, never-ending appeal basis, but they even just vacated all the previous judgments against him, which there's no constitutional predicate for. They have no right to do, but they did it. You know, politics, as Bismarck said, politics is the art of the possible. Uh, and these ju these members, these ministers of the Supreme Court and the subsidiary court, the electoral court, are uh, they're acting as political partisans. They're not following their prescribed role under the Brazilian Constitution of adjudicating, you know, constitutional dispute, they're doing these wholesale diktat and fiat, passing laws, enforcing them with their own federal police force. Uh, so it was, you know, it's very ugly. People in Brazil know this on the ground. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing, which is not just, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, but millions and even into the eight figures of people in this, the sixth largest country in the world, 212 million people taking to the streets. We're in day 29 uh, from the day after the Sunday, October 30th, late night tabulation. The next day, people are on the street. And where are the counter protesters? Where are the Lula? De Silva supporters, uh, you know, Marxists are not afraid to march. This is usually their strongest weapon is manifestations and creating an optic of they're with the people. And there are no counter protests. Lula doesn't really have much of a base, which only further emboldens the protest movement because they know that this thing is a sham. Uh, they've done audits. The military has a right to audit uh, when there's an allegation of election impropriety. And the Supreme Electoral Court, which is a subsidiary court uh, to the Supreme Court, and both are headed by the same guy, a guy named Alexander de Moraes, who is sort of public enemy number one to uh, to most Brazilians. They see him as somebody who is a uh, pending autocrat who's done all these things by, by judicial fiat. Uh, and they have man let me cut you off right there because I, I as you said we are 29 days into this or you know it, it's been yeah. it's been roiling for weeks and weeks now and that's why we wanted to bring you on was to break it down for the listeners because this thing shows no sign of coming to anything remotely resembling a, a peaceful end soon and you know you have you have your finger on the pulse there but you know a lot, a lot of names i mean my god i mean the, the way the way that you the way that you throw out these international names i think you know makes even me blush to be totally honest with you and i can only imagine the listeners probably need to go grab a glass water to catch up and take a deep breath let's so on that note let's or just go to or go to cdm.press and you can read about it. that's where i've been covering a todd wood site because he's uh not afraid to run out the uh, narratives that many would be afraid because the brazilian court is censoring social media companies international media companies they say you have to take anything down that we say otherwise we start finding you and we'll kick you no it's insane it, it's it, it, it's absolutely insane and 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 i was really thrilled to see you on, on tucker carlson's fox show to talk about it but let's go ahead and take it to that quick commercial break to give the listeners a chance to go take a deep breath and we'll, we'll be right back with matthew tiermont on the other side i want to talk about the implications of this how it ultimately gets resolved and then transition a little bit to what's happening in europe which is kind of the og center of gravity for matthew's various international exploits so you're listening to the josh hammer show stay with us delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery starring academy award winner russell crowe now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
So, Matt, let's pick off right where we left off then. So, these protests have been going on for weeks and weeks. Bolsonaro, on the one hand, he has not conceded. On the other hand, he has kind of, sort of, kind of paved the way for his administration to step aside. How does this end? And what is your prediction for both the timing as to when that ends and, frankly, just how that path gets written? Yep. So the zero date, uh, so to speak, is uh, December 19th. That's when you've got the certification of Lula. Should it be certified, then he would take the uh, the seat of president on January 1st, January 2nd, first business day of the new year. Uh, I do believe that the military is going to act. In the Brazilian constitution, there's an article that's highly controversial and obviously jurisprudential debate exists around it. But Article 142 says that uh, in periods of distress and strife and disorder and instability, it is the Brazilian's military's job to restore order. And this includes if there's a dispute between separation of powers, which is certainly what's what's transpiring here. The judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch are all at odds. Specifically, the judiciary is at odds with the executive branch, with the turnover. Uh, and the Brazilian military says specifically, or the Constitution says specifically, that uh, the military is the stabilizing force in society because the military is the institution that's most governed by discipline, hierarchy, and order. And if you look at the Brazilian flag, sort of what are the Brazilian national mottos is order me progresso, order and progress. We need order to achieve progress is sort of the vernacular. And I think the people very firmly on the ground, there's a reason they're protesting outside the barracks. You've got commandants of these different regional military installations, what we would call forts, uh, are saying our job is to protect the protesters. The military cares very much about Brazil's sovereignty. They were uh, a firsthand witness to seeing what was going on under Lula, Dilma, and Temer 10 years ago when there were mass protests, and that's led to the, uh, the convictions and the impeachment of Lula and Dilma. Uh, so they do not want to see Brazilian sovereignty get sold to the CCP for cash and bags, the natural resource assets, the free rights of Brazilian people. And there's a vice president uh, under uh, Bolsonaro, General Hamilton Morale, who's been he's an interesting follow on social media. And two Fridays ago, he tweeted and social media posted elsewhere that the court is eviscerating the Constitution. I'm paraphrasing. But he said what we all know. When you've got this high up ranking a military official who has this level <clears throat> of public trust and respect from all sides saying that that was not a unilateral statement in my view that was something that was uh, weighed upon within the brazilian military complex and that was their shot across the bow yesterday he posted a picture from uh, november 27th 1935 the 72nd anniversary of what he uh termed the first time the communists tried to take over brazil and they were pushed back it will happen again and again and we are essentially on guard uh so i think that's a secondary shot on the bow they worked on this audit which is their constitutional right of the election and they wrote a 65 page report that said we cannot overwhelmingly prove fraud but we know that the court was not uh fully transparent with us they wouldn't give us the machines they wouldn't give us the source code and they wouldn't give us the tabulation data so they already set up their predicate for taking action you have had uh, Bolsonaro's party, PL, the uh, party head, Valdemar de Neto, put out a court petition last week saying the same thing, that they know they now have proven that some of the machines from later series have flaws and glitches in them, but the Supreme Electoral Court is not uh, complying with their demands for full transparency. So they're looking to annul any of the votes that were cast on those machines. So all these things are sort of setting us up. And keep in mind, and this is very important, Bolsonaro has been nowhere on this. And I believe that is the correct, uh, both from a political as well as a moral standpoint, uh, position to be in. 
do not involve yourself. Do not, you know, uh, gin up uh, the energies. The people know what's going on. All he said in his 48 hours after the tabulation, when he gave his first press conference, said, we will comply with the Brazilian Constitution. If you believe there is uh, grounds for protest, that is your constitutional right. If you believe it's warranted to go to the streets and people have. Bolsonaro is not making comments. He's not uh, doing visible meetings where he's, you know, uh, backslapping. It's a very good point, actually. Honestly, I started cutting off. I honestly had not even thought about that. You're totally right. I mean, he really has been not particularly public facing amidst these ongoing roiling protests at all. I mean, you know, they're very, very, very different. And, you know, to kind of give to kind of give a bit of a preview for where I'm going to take this conversation in just a few minutes. You know, I think some folks here on the home front, uh, you know, frankly, could take a bit of advice from what Jair Bolsonaro is doing down in Brazil. But, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I just want to say that I hope that this comes to a peaceful conclusion, and obviously I hope for a for a just outcome, but when we're talking about Brazil, just to kind of make sure the listeners grasp the magnitude of this, Brazil is not like a random third world country here. This is the 12th largest economy in the world. It is Its GDP yep. is just behind Russia, which is number 11. It is the fifth largest, the seventh most populous. I mean, you know, for years and years, Six, kind of... Yes, two, 212 million, sixth largest... Sixth largest, okay, so... I, and third largest, uh, third largest in our hemisphere, uh, I'm sorry, second largest in our hemisphere with the third largest economy after the U.S. and Canada. Right. It, it ain't Ecuador. It matters. No, it matters a lot, and, and, and we really cannot let Brazil become the next Venezuela. Obviously, from kind of a right of center, also kind of national conservative, national populist perspective, Jair Bolsonaro, you know, really kind of shined, I think, as a leader on the world stage alongside folks like President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Prime Minister Orban in Hungary. I mean, there were, you know, fairly... Yeah, more 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 of Yeski, who we co-interviewed in Warsaw. There were fairly few kind of prominent, really cutting edge, you know, intellectually well-grounded, right of center global leaders, and Bolsonaro was one of them. So, you know, thank you for all the service that you've done kind of covering this. You really have been kind of the American media, the American kind of investigative journalist wings, uh, tip of the spear down there. And, you know, really thank you so much for that. But you made you made a good point that just deserves touching upon. It is important Brazil does not become the next Venezuela. If Brazil becomes the next Venezuela, then this hemisphere has a metastatic, a metastasis of Chinese-backed. It used to be Russia and the Soviet Union pushed global communism, whether it was Vietnam, North Korea, you know, Cuba. That was their proxies. Now it's been Venezuela and Brazil under Lula and Dilma helping support Cuba. And to that end, in 1990, they founded the Sao Paulo Forum, which was sort of a globalist conclave for workers of the world unite getting together in Sao Paulo. Who founded that? Lula da Silva and Fidel Castro together. How and that this is what helped usher in Latin American communism in its more modern iteration. This is Chavez was a, a member of the Sao Paulo Forum, Maduro, uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia, uh, now Boric in uh, Chile and Petro in Colombia. So this is, you know, super metastatic, like a cancer metastasizing. And should it fall, then Latin America is gone for generations. And we do not have a bulwark there. Uh, Colombia and Chile just fell to uh, leftist socialists associated with these same communist cabals. And this would be very deleterious to our own interest because China would now not only have a giant geographic uh, regional foothold, but it would also have a potentially globally dominant natural resource right. foothold. One of the reasons Brazil is such a prize is not just uh, oil, not just timber, 
iron ore. Tons of inputs into indu- in the sort of modern industrial age are in Brazil. It's why there, it's a cobalt, tin, the copper in, in Chile and all over South America. China having control and dominion over this natural resource base would be a very worrying uh, headwind. For- and it comes at a time when China has, and it comes at a time when China has an increasing monopoly as it stands over the various right. rare earth minerals, uh, min- minerals like like lithium. Yep. China is all over Africa, as you just said, in a way yep. that the United States simply is not. And it also comes at a time when some more kind of neoconservative, skeptical, perhaps kind of more realist or even populist inclined kind of foreign policy voices, and I sometimes include myself in those ranks, have urged kind of a grasping again of the Monroe Doctrine and kind of a focusing on the Western Hemisphere, Latin America. So all of these themes are just really, really, really important here. But I want to touch upon something that is actually also outside the scope of the Monroe Doctrine, outside of the Americas, which is your bread and butter of Europe. Matthew, among your various international exploits, you were on the ground there in Sweden in September as the Swedish Democrats, a, a populist-inclined kind of national conservative party, rose to hitherto unforeseen prominence in the Swedish elections there. And it, it comes across really at a time when, you know, right of center national populist, national conservative parties all across Europe seem to be reaching unforeseen heights, the immigration issue, kind of Islamization, these various issues, uh, the I and I issues, you might call them immigration and Islamization are, are increasingly touching very mainstream voters. It is, those are no longer kind of fringe concerns. We see this in the UK, of course, as well. As you mentioned, uh, Brexit was 2016. That was obviously a shot across the bow. So what were you seeing on the ground there in Sweden? And I guess more generally speaking, what is your sense, having your finger on the pulse as you do, of kind of the future of the sovereigntist, as you called it, national conservative movement there on the European continent? So obviously in Europe, you've had this sort of accelerating trend until Brexit. And this is, you know, I wrote a piece for uh, American Mind, uh, which is our uh, our organization that we're fellows at Claremont's, one of their online journals, uh, Go Westphalian Young Man, about Westphalian sovereignty and how after World War II, there was a continued trend toward harmonization and breaking down the sovereign rights of national state uh, sort of self-determination, nation state self-determination. And this kept accelerating until Brexit. Brexit was the inflection. Now, for reactionaries, which, you know, generally as conservatives, we are the radical left does their crazy stuff. And then we have to react to it and say, hey, you know, like, you know, we don't love NR, but Buckley's old comment about, you know, standing athwart history and yelling stop to me is quite the uh, sort of perfect uh, reactionary mantra, because the radicals will keep taking, taking, taking and trying to build their utopia, as we know, uh, believing in a higher power. There are no utopias on Earth. Man is full flawed, original sin. So when you put your trust in men who promise utopia, usually ends in gulags. And history has well borne that out. So the EU has been continuing to try and tie together these nation states and take away their their self-determinating rights. And Brexit was an inflection. And at the same time, over the last 10 years or so, 12 years, 14 years, there's been this acceleration in each nation state to develop their reactionary sovereigntist party. And, we, you know, we talked about France, Belgium with Blancs Belong. And of all places, obviously, in behind the Iron Curtain, it makes more sense. These are countries that had their sovereignty stripped from them and had to uh, live under bureaucratic diktat from a far off mandarins in Moscow who were not so friendly to their own individual desires, rights and uh, and, you know, the, their own pursuits of happiness. Uh, well, in Sweden, which has always been sort of a uh, uh, an apotheosis of 
divorced public policy, you know, very resource rich, not a lot of people, uh, very, very globalist left. It's not coincidental that things like the Nobel Prize come out of Sweden. Uh, this has been a place that has not really had to worry about some of the downsides of it until they went too far in their own public policy and decided open borders migration from the third world was a beautiful, wonderful thing. Diversity is our strength, yada, yada, yada. Well, they have had to suffer. Their people have had to suffer in this sort of 10 years on, 15 years on from that that total debacle of open borders with higher rapes, no go zones. You know, when you take people from the third world and you say we're going to put them in a progressive, uh, modern, postmodern framework. Well, they don't always assimilate as the uh, as the professoriate class of the ivory tower in politics or the academy or the media would like to see in their uh, uh, their work toward utopia. Uh, and so. So the Swedish Dems rose up. They have a history. They've been around for a while. They have some, you know, like many right wing parties, they have some uh, sort of ugly nativist racially uh, tinged uh, uh, bases in their party formations. But most of these parties have gone so far from that as they've evolved, that people evolved, as communications have evolved, as interdependence among nation states within Europe have evolved. It's not about that. So that's something that the media and the academy weaponize against them, even though it's a uh, canard. Uh, and in Sweden, the Swedish Dems have finally this cycle got past that and removed the stigma that was historically attached to them by the establishment. And they were the kingmaker in creating a right-wing coalition government. To think that Sweden, what people think of as this sort of apotheosis, Scandinavian socialism, so far left, brought us you know wonders of the world like Greta Thunberg, uh, who they <laughs> exported uh, globally. Uh, well, they just moved to the right, and the Swedish Dems really deserve all the credit for that. You know, the right-wing coalition still has a lot of uh, squishes, liberals and moderates, uh, but it ain't the hard left so Eurocentric socialists of the left-wing coalition that had basically run Sweden for many decades uninterrupted. And so this was a real pendulum shift in Scandinavia, in Sweden, in Scandinavia, and in Europe writ large. And I always say to <coughs> my friends in different sovereignist parties around Europe, whether it's Italy, like Fratelli or Lega or all the rest of them that we talk about, that the Swedish Dems are the, are the model. They're very, they're young, they're energetic, they're holistic on their policy platforms, they work together, uh, they don't have any scandals, there's no like corruption scandals like uh, FPO in Austria had with Ibiza Gate and, you know, trading money and, and being bought off by the Russians and AFD right now. There's some parliamentarians in the European Parliament in the Bundestag. Did they learn from Fidesz, Tiermond? Did they learn from Fidesz, the Sweden Dems, you think? I think that, you know, over the last 15 years, there's been a lot more transfer. Like the stuff like you and I were both at CPAC Hungary and we had members of all the different parties. I think there is some there there there's some truth to this idea that, you know, even though they just want to work on their own countries, that's their whole point of their sovereignist movements. It's one of the reasons they have trouble working together in the European Parliament is they don't really get along. But they have right. some of these party leaders and party figures and electeds across the European Parliament and national parliaments have learned from each other, have learned on on messaging, on media. Uh, on political strategy, on uh, working together in Brussels and Strasbourg. And I think there probably is, you know, learning from each other. I mean, there's now, of course, some of these parties do have uh, antipathy toward one another. Uh, there are historical uh, cultural dynamics that exist over generations. But by and large, I do think there is some learning from each other. And, you know, the fact that there's a CPAC Europe or even CPAC US, that's how I met a lot of these guys sure. from, you know, Sweden, from Germany, from Hungary, is they would come to CPAC in DC and then in uh, Orlando more recently uh, or Dallas. And so there is a more there's an acknowledgement that the left works together globally and that if the right is going to uh, get back some of that ground that was ceded uh, to globalism uh, writ large, they have to. They have to.
have to, you know, be cognizant of each other's movements and take best practices. This is something I lecture about all the time. It's like you can't be siloed. Is you have to, you know, work within the different media constraints, the the global platforms that we've built alternatively. Uh, you've done a great job, obviously, with the Newsweek op-ed page, and you run Europeans all the time. Uh, from yeah, you, know, you can't be silent, and you happen. you actually touched on a really good point there. Is you can't be silent, and you. You have the network. In fact, if there is one lesson that I would try to impart to the younger listeners of this program, you have to meet people and you have to stay in touch with people. You have to work those connections. I mean, when you're hearing Matthew Tierman rattle off all of these names of people, when you probably hear me similarly kind of rattle off various names of people. I mean, those are people that we have met. Those are people that we have met through the years of being active in the movement, of kind of going to all the events. Um, quick note of clarification, I actually was not at CPAC Hungary. I was planning to go initially oh, back when it was in March. And, and then when and then when they uh, rescheduled it over to May, I was not able to make it. So I just don't want the listeners to kind of come away from that with, with, with false information. But um, you're I conflated. We were both in Hungary for uh, Matthias Corvinus Collegium, which is a great institution, a right wing college that was uh, that was sort of Correct. run out of the Hungarian uh, right wing ivory tower, which is a good thing. We were both at a conference there talking about media and some other issues. Correct. So, yeah. And, and I was and I was in Budapest earlier this year, back back in February. I think I spoke about it on this program at the time as well. So, Matthew, we're running out of time on the program. I do want to well, kind one, of one thing I would just say to, to add to that point is because it's so key when you say this, to the younger listeners keep it. Think about the derivations of the word politics, you know, the polity, people. No politics happens in a siloed off vacuum. Politics happens by people organizing and engaging each other and together. And so it really is a key point. If we're going to get back some of that seated ground, we have to, whether, you know, even if uh, sometimes politics does make strange bedfellows, as the saying goes, but we have to learn from each other and the best practices. So it really is a key point. No, absolutely. And it really is an important lesson for for the youngsters out there, our Gen Z and millennial listeners to come away with, you know, look, I mean, uh, Tiermond, myself, you know, folks who have, uh, you know, made a living kind of like fighting for what we believe is, you know, right, just and the American way, so to speak. It doesn't happen overnight. You really have to kind of meet people and just the, the human aspect of all of this stuff. I just cannot emphasize how important it is enough. So, you know, Matthew, I, were, I, I wish I could I wish I could make a living doing it. To be honest, I, I still am an investment banker. I don't I do. Most of this is sport, which is uh, or, you know, passion projects like Brazil. You know, I'm doing all this stuff just because I'm interested and I just gravitate toward raking the muck as you correctly use the word muckraker. And uh, I just want to go out and talk about the ideas and uncover stuff and flow begets flow. So I get more and more sources. Uh, but, you know, my uh, my professional life is still somewhat Wall Street oriented, or at least that's what keeps food on the table. Well, fair enough. And we don't want you to go hungry, obviously. We want you to have a, a very well-stocked refrigerator. I can say as a friend, of, I, I, I can say as a friend of yours who has been to your apartment, that refrigerator could actually use a bit more food, to be honest with you. But uh, unfortunately, we're out of time here on the program, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I know the listeners thoroughly enjoyed your breaking down what's happening in, in Brazil and Europe for us. So thank you so much. Oh, no, my pleasure. Anytime. And maybe one day we'll get to domestic politics, too. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Thanks again for Matthew Tiermont for joining. Very few people have their thumb on the pulse of the international geopolitical scene like Matthew Tiermont does everywhere from Latin America to Europe to, of course, the domestic front. You heard a little bit of that in the opening monologue this week. We didn't get a chance to talk about that with Matthew in this particular show, but we will be sure to bring him back on future episodes. And if you like the kind of guests that we are bringing on here, if you enjoy the content here on the Josh Hammer Show, I would implore you, please, please go ahead and go to Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, go to wherever you get your podcast. Please leave us a five-star review, and this is crucial. Please leave a positive written comment. We depend on the feedback. We depend on the generosity of listeners like you to grow this show. And we need to grow this show because we have very big plans for this show. This show is not going to slow down anytime soon. It is only on the up and up. And we have huge, huge plans over the next 6, 12 months, you name it. So we depend on you, the listener, for all of that. And we'd be very grateful for your support. So once again, if you enjoy this show week in and week out, please go ahead and leave that five-star review. Write in an actual comment. We really do depend on that. The algorithms care about that quite a bit. So thank you very much in advance for doing so. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation with Matthew Tiermond. We will be right back with you again next week. And until then, take care.